Welcome everybody, Andrew Halachek here. Um, and I have to tell you, I am particularly excited to spend the next hour or so with a dear, dear friend of mine, um, Dr. Roger Walsh, who I'm sure you will agree with me is an absolutely unique and beautiful human being. Um, I've had the great good fortune of studying Roger's work at this point, actually for decades, uh, reading his many books. Um, and really became uh, even more enamored with him when we met um, a little over a year and a half ago at an integral conference and presented together and found him to be even more extraordinary in person than he is in a, a kind of written capacity. And so what I'd like to do is introduce Roger formally by reading a little bit of his bio. And then we definitely do not have any shortage of provocative material to talk about. Um, so this is what Roger has to say, uh, at least in terms of his biography, it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary. So Roger Walsh, MD, PhD, graduated from Queensland University with degrees in psychology, physiology, neuroscience, and medicine before coming to the United States as a Fulbright scholar. He is currently a professor of psychiatry, philosophy, anthropology, and religious studies at the University of California. His research interests include psychological well-being, wisdom, and love, practices such as meditation that foster them, and how we can best respond to the social and global challenges of our time. He is a student, teacher, and researcher of several contemplative practices. Roger's research and writings have received over 20 national and international awards, while his teaching has received eight awards. He is a University of California distinguished writer as well as its outstanding physician. His books include Essential Spirituality, Seven Central Practices, Paths Beyond Ego, as well as The World of Shamanism and the modestly titled book, The World's Great Wisdom. Um, and really, Roger, this is my favorite part of your bio. I did not know this about you, and I think it's just awesome. He was formerly a world record holder in high diving and a circus acrobat and recently graduated from the San Francisco Comedy College and had an extremely brief and unsuccessful career as a stand-up comedian. Uh, OMG, Roger, that's just funny as hell. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it wasn't at the time, but <laughs> still. <laughs> no, I yeah, I think it's already successful because it's made me laugh. Um, I did not know that about you. I mean, that just that just even rounds off the the picture even more beautifully. So, um, wow, my dear friend, we have we have so much to talk about. What what I want to do is uh, just situate a little bit where your brilliance will fit into what we're trying to do with our our venture um, in that uh, kind of nightclub, and this has to do with. Uh, what our members are familiar with in, in the back of the nightclub so to speak we have these six ongoing tracks a curricula that i have playfully referred to as night school and they are somewhat all centered around lucid dreaming but um and we'll definitely talk more about this uh, lucid dreaming is really used as a platform for um discussing discussing the lucidity principle altogether that's really the heart of it where Lucidity is just really a code word for awareness. So everything that we're doing with our nightclub night school um, under the guise of lucid dreaming is increasing awareness to be um, more awake, uh, not only in our dreams, of course, but in our daily life. Um, and so welcome, my dear friend. Um, I'm just 
totally delighted to have you with us. And, and uh, I want to start actually by talking a little bit about what you included in this rich bio, um, which is how can we best use the psychological practices and things like meditation um, as a way to respond to the social and global challenges of our time? Because one of the very common critiques, in fact, one of our, our active members um, leveled a very, I think, very cogent critique about, as I'm sure you very well know, how these meditation practices can so easily slip into a host of um, psycho-spiritual pathologies, you know, things like spiritual bypassing, um, cosmological dualism, um, spiritual materialism, and the like. And, and so um, I want to discuss with you, if it's okay, as our launching topic, um, exactly this uh, near enemy. You know, the, the idea of near enemies is, is very much in the spirit of the alchemical tradition and also the tantric tradition where wherever you find light, you will find shadows. Um, every noble quality has an ignoble shadow side. And in these teachings on um, lucidity, lucid dreaming, uh, the practices of a loose reform, which all, as you know, kind of circumambulate the core teachings on emptiness, it's super easy to become um, dismissive in our relationship to the phenomenal world and, and use these things as covert mechanisms for escapism. Um, and so I would love to start to talk about that and both your personal experience with this on your own extensive meditative path and how you've worked with this uh, professionally uh, in your clinical practice and also as a meditation instructor. So let's launch with that. Well, that's a, <clears throat> there's a lot there. <laughs> so that should keep us busy for a while. Yeah. Uh, well, let's, uh, first off, let's acknowledge that <clears throat> The unique aspect of our time that this is the first time in human history we've had access to the world's contemplative traditions and the vast array of practices they have available. And we're really just beginning to understand them. And yet we have this priceless opportunity of not only looking across the variety of the world's contemplative practices, uh, distilling, recognizing common core elements, uh, unique flavors, uh, different capacities, etc., that they have recognized, but also to combine this with scientific research. And that opens a whole new door and variety of possibilities. And I was just looking at the meditation research uh, uh, surveys uh, earlier today, and there are over 6,000 studies that have been done on meditation alone now. So this is just an extraordinary burgeoning field. And we're just beginning to appreciate some of the values and benefits of these practices. For example, you know, we have a host of benefits that have been recorded uh, well, for, say, lucid dreaming to begin with, but all sorts of contemplative practices, but there have been first-person reports. Now, we have, now we're identifying a variety of benefits that weren't even talked about much in the, in the previous literature, physiological effects, neurophysiological effects, effects on learning, IQ, uh, a variety of cognitive, uh, emotional capacities. And who would have thought, for example, that meditation is a relatively solitary practice. The largest effect of all would turn out to be increase, an improvement in relationship qualities. Uh, yeah. so, 
So, so it's early days, and we're just beginning to appreciate the benefits. And even le- less, we're just beginning to appreciate some of the difficulties. Because, as I'm sure you know, <laughs> you know well, uh, if you look back at the classic text, we basically got pretty uh, pretty boulderized. <laughs> Uh, additions about these things. The usual story is, you know, so-and-so learned the teachings, disappeared into the monastery and and became enlightened. Well, sort of like boy meets girl, you know, they uh, ride off into the sunset and live happily ever after. If you've you've ever been in an intimate relationship, you know something's missing. (laughs) So, and it's sure similarly similar with uh, these practices. And I think that's what you're pointing to. There are a lot of traps and problems that uh, anyone can fall into, and and we will fall into them. The problem with these practices, some of them are incredible, superb. They cultivate all sorts of capacities and virtues and potentials, and they're practiced by human beings. It's a real problem. Absolutely. And and I just wanted to uh, immediately um, riff a little bit on what you just said about these you know six thousand plus studies and i think isn't it right roger something like over 500 a year now are being churned out which is extraordinary and how it is it's it's so compelling to me how it is that that meditation um which you know these are side effects because in the wisdom traditions and please correct me if i'm wrong meditation came about primarily as a as a, a, a soteriological enterprise as a way to achieve liberation and so the truly amazing thing to me is that there are so many collateral benefits to meditation that aren't even part of the initial kind of charter or trajectory. And the fact that you um, kind of paying right at the beginning its ability to improve relationship, to me, I find that archetypal because in many ways, I look at meditation altogether as a way to um, improve relationship to the contents of mind and reality altogether. And so the fact to me that it would have this very specific um, kind of benefit in terms of human relationship is, is I think, um, completely confluent with this larger kind of benefit that, that meditation. In fact, this is one of the ways I define it, Roger, is in, in so many ways meditation doesn't really change a thing out there, so to speak, but what it does is it changes the way we relate to whatever is out there or, or even in there. Um, and so I find it really compelling that relationship is the one thing that kind of stands out and that we can kind of extrapolate it back into this kind of more foundational benefit of just improving relationship altogether. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, but yes, it's a beautiful uh Beautiful example of uh, what I hadn't appreciated as a as a larger process, and of course, yes. Uh, now that you say it, it's totally obvious. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah, yeah, and so let let's dive a little bit more into some of these shadow elements because one of the truly remarkable gifts you bring is your expertise in in so many different areas, um, both you know experientially. And doctrinally, and your ability to bring um, a kind of therapeutic lens to the meditative path altogether, and that's a topic I want to follow up in just a second. But but let's talk. Let's unpack a little bit more some of these, I think, primary shadow elements in the teachings on um, lucid dreaming and, and its daytime practice, illusory form, which, as you know, Roger is is 
one of the things that differentiates lucid dreaming from dream yoga, um, lucid dreaming per se doesn't have the practice of illusory form, but in the dream yoga traditions, illusory form is, is foundational. In fact, so much so that in many of the practice texts, dream yoga is actually considered a subset of the practice of illusory form. And immediately when you talk about things like illusory form or empty form, oh my gosh, you got the booby traps of nihilism, spiritual bypassing and, and the like. So let's let's unpack that a little bit and how easy it is for unwitting practitioners to hit the um, eject and escape button when they engage in these practices. And basically um, in their efforts to wake up, they um, often find themselves getting out in, in the pejorative negative sense. So help us a little bit with those. Okay, and one of the things, first things comes up for me is as you were riffing there about the varieties of problems that people can get into is the recognition that we don't as yet have a good map or a cartography of the shadow side of contemplative practices or the pathologies that can emerge or the, the problems that people can run into. You know, it's amazing to realize that this is – this is a relatively re a pretty recent field. Yes, it's true that there have always been warnings in the texts about traps, but we haven't really recognized that that there can be more than traps or side side alleys that people can actually, in some cases, experience uh, significant distress, pathologies of various kinds can emerge. And we don't have a good map of these yet. So I think as as we discuss this, we'll be um, working with our own particular predilections for what to look at. And so I guess my first question for you, Andrew, would be, is there are there particular kinds of issues or problems or even pathologies that you'd be particularly interested in ex yeah. exploring? Yes, yes, there is. I'm going I'm to answer that, Roger, by reading a short quotation from, you may know him, the sociologist and teacher, David Loy. I, I really like his thinking. Uh, he wrote, oh, yes, he's wonderful. He's a wonderful individual. I, I had the uh, good fortune of meeting him not that terribly long ago. And he talks, he, he riffs a little bit on the idea of cosmological dualism. Um, and this is what he says when, when I read it. Um, this is his commentary on this idea of cosmological dualism, you know, the idea uh, either overt and covert, as you know, in so many other wisdom traditions, um, that if there is a transcendent reality, a nirvana, a heaven, a pure land, it's almost inevitable for people to think that they are going to leave this um, grimy, gritty, everyday relative reality as a way to escape into some version of heaven. In fact, A.H. Almas um, brilliantly said, you know, when people set out on the spiritual path, most of the time they are, are unwittingly setting out for heaven. And, um, you know, I've come to understand that if we can't find heaven on earth, our awakening is incomplete. And so this is what David has to say that I think will be a wonderful platform. So this is what he says. He says, the danger with the view of cosmological dualism is that if nothing is real, therefore nothing is important. Seeing everything as illusory discourages social or ecological engagement. Why bother? The important point here is that clinging to emptiness can function in the same way as cosmological dualism, both of them devaluing this world and its problems. To see this world as illusion is to dwell in an emptiness that is disengaged from its forms, 
in which the end of suffering involves non-attachment to the fate of beings, paren, another near enemy, and paren, rather than non-attachment to one's own ego, end quote. And so I thought he just pinged this thing right on the head. Um, and so, yeah, let, let's talk a little bit more about that, because I, I have certainly fallen prey to this subtle spiritual pathology myself, thinking that um, I'm just going to find my way out of this mess and, and you know, fundal- fundamentally making the discovery that until I can use my wisdom and, and kind of pull this wicked U-turn, right, uh, this wicked-ass U-turn where I'm rocketing up and out and realizing that if I don't bring my wisdom back into form through the process of waking down um, into the forms that I differentiated from in my process of waking up, my spiritual path is incomplete. Um, I'm only partway there. So um, what say you? Yeah, so uh, essentially you're pointing to the idea of the uh, illusory nature of the world and the traps that go with that. And there's uh, with this issue, as with so many problems that one can run into in contemplative practices, there's a grain of truth there. Across traditions, there's a widespread recognition that reality is not what we think it is, that it's much more multi-layered. There are ways of seeing into the nature of ourselves and of reality that through contemplative practice go much deeper and call into question our conventional assumptions. And along with that, comes a particular remedy. One of the recognitions across traditions is that the our, our conventional nature, our ego-bound nature, our identity as separate self-senses, is in a fundamental way illusory or mistaken. And we suffer from essentially a chronic form of mistaken identity. Mm-hmm. And that the ego-bound identity, the idea of ourselves as skin-encapsulated egos or centered in the body or limited to physical form, etc., comes with uh, many costs. One of them is, as David Loy pointed out, a fundamental sense of lack or flaw. Mm-hmm. I call it the triple F fallacy, the, the fundamental flaw fallacy, the assumption that we are in some way defective, deficient, and flawed. And as a result of that, there's, again, almost universal agreement across contemplative traditions that one of the compensatory responses to that is a compulsive seeking for acquisitions, for things, for ways of filling that gap, and that we are by nature addictive creatures or addicted creatures. And that addiction is not, as our culture understands it, just something which has a couple of specific forms, usually thought of as drugs and food and sex, but that this is a much larger dynamic in all of us, all of us who are not uh, significantly awakened. And one of the remedies for this, and this brings us back to your original point, is a recognition that we are not seeing things clearly, that our usual 
perception and understanding of both ourselves and the world is in some sense illusory. And so one of the core teachings is a deep ontological teaching about the fundamental nature of ourselves and the world as when you skillfully encouraging us to look at the world in a different and more healthy and more realistic way, which in an, which has the benefit of reducing our addictions and our hankering after the toys and trinkets of the world. So that's the healthy strategy uh, behind the idea of the illusory nature of the world. But of course, there are a couple of problems there. One is that that's not the final perception or understanding. There are deeper perceptions or understandings, and uh, that those involve a variety of uh, non-dual perceptions. The other side of this is the trap of the the devaluing of the world and the dismissal of its suffering, uh, which can serve a defensive function in many ways from helping us avoid the recognition of the fundamental nature of suffering as a part of human existence, removing the obligation or or call to service, and uh, negating the call to compassion and care. So, yes, indeed, you're pointing to something very important. These these are real problems. Wow, what a rich set of offerings here, Roger. I mean, goodness gracious, I mean, the idea of seeing things more realistically is one of the ways that we define what it means to be lucid. I mean, non-lucidity is really just getting lost, not seeing properly, being too um, too involved with form. And, and I mean, when you're talking about this kind of devaluation of form, it, it's a classic, you know, our, our mutual friend Ken Wilber talks about it, I believe in his adaptation of Hegel's famous statement, the idea of transcend but include. And what you're basically paraphrasing here is that we're we're particularly adept at transcending, but not so good at including. Um, and so there. Well, are, many of most of us are not so good at transcending either. Well, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So so yeah. Either way, right? Either way, we kind of uh, get lost a little bit. But I man, I want to return back to what you're talking about. This idea of this kind of deficiency, this fundamental flaw fallacy, and really the kind of misunderstanding. Um, of emptiness as a as a deficient emptiness, and I could not agree more with you that we have this ineffable sense, this inarticulate sense that something is missing, and and so uh, over covert ways we're we're hungry, and and so we eat, um, but we don't really know what we're eating, and and I really um, kind of argue that we eat the menu instead of the meal, and hence. We have all these forms of obesity, which uh, physical obesity is just one expression, where we have intellectual obesity, we have spiritual obesity, we have ideological obesity, where we're trying to show this fundamental deficiency, um, which is incredibly painful because I think this is, and you can speak with more authority about this than me, that this is one of the unfortunate legacies of of the Judeo-Christian Judeo-Christian notion of, of original sin, this foundational deficiency that is completely uh, um, kind of opposite to the wisdom non-theistic tradition's assertion that fundamentally we're we're already divine that we are christ and buddha within and and so it makes it doubly painful 
that fundamentally, if we were looking in the proper way and um, releasing our insatiable appetite for form, we would in fact, in fact find the real truth that we're looking for instead of all the substitutes. And, and the last thing here, Roger, what I thought was brilliant was that, you know, this uh, notion that we're addicts by nature. And um, I'm not sure you're aware, but in the, in the Tibetan Buddhist cosmological schema, they talk about three fundamental realms of samsaric existence. And um, the realm that we exist in as humans is what's called the realm of desire, which I believe is a gentle euphemism for the realm of addiction. It, and fundamentally, it's the addiction to form. And, and so therefore, I think it's not too much of a stretch to say that in many ways, we are each, um, I mean, at really subtle levels, um, junkies to thought. We're all thought junkies because that's a subtle um, inner type of form that, that we feast on all the time. And, and the narratives that are born from that give rise to non-lucidity in the deepest sense. Um, and then uh, the natural consequence of that kind of lust for non-lucidity, kind of gorging on non-lucidity, of course, for our listeners who are um, deeply interested in the practice of lucid dreaming, this, of course, is one reason why we have so many lucid, non-lucid dreams at night, because we're feasting on and actually lusting after non-lucidity during the day. Um, so I could not agree more with what you're saying. And so uh, if you have more comments on that, I'd love to hear it. But otherwise, what other pathologies have you witnessed in your own psychospiritual development, Roger, and also with your vast experience as a as a, a health healthcare professional and a meditation instructor, I mean, what other traps do people get lost in that you see with some consistency? Well, let's see. You asked about two kinds yeah. of traps. My own personal ones, a, a long story, and uh, more general uh, problems that people run into, and particularly the ones that we see clinically. Starting for myself, I think I've been particular particularly prey to one class of traps that comes with any kind of practice, and that is uh, a using it in a way which amplifies one's problematic personality aspects. For me, uh, I have, have had a been very achievement-oriented, driven. Um, so when I dove into, jumped into spiritual practice, it was going to be enlightenment or bust. And, uh, you know, I, I was seeking a Nobel Prize in enlightenment, and uh, <laughs> and uh, it was enlightenment or bust, and I busted. Uh, I really worked very hard at the practices, and that they, that had significant advantages. And I eventually worked to the point of overdoing it and burning out extremely badly and taking several years uh, for recovery. Um, and that was fair. So that was a, a you misusing the practices in a way which uh, – aligned with and reinforced and strengthened a particularly problematic aspect of my personality. And that dovetailed with the culture of the practice I was working with. I was 
primarily meditating in those days in the Theravada and Vipassana tradition. And there, there's a very ascetic element that runs through it. And I still remember reading the line, as long as the yogi has skin on his bones, he practices arduously day and night. Well, I that was the ideal I took on. And it's great in theory, but there's also the idea of balance. And and zeal, enthusiasm, energy, effort are very fine virtues. And if there's one thing that I've come to learn both from the hard knocks of personal experience and from looking at uh, the wisdom traditions and from looking at Western philosophy, it's the idea that there needs to be a balance between virtues. And that when any virtue is taken to excess without a, an equivalent or at least a proportionate cultivation of other virtues, we run out of, we, we fall out of balance and into problems. So that's an example, a personal example for me of a, a problematic, uh, approach that got, got me into trouble. Uh, I could go now into some more general clinical yeah. aspects, but would you like, is there anything you'd like to comment on there? Well, yeah, 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 a couple of things there, Roger. One is, uh, is what, what did you do um, to reconstitute or heal this excess? I mean, what, what in, in a year or two that you took to recover, so to speak, what was the major component in that recovery for you? Well, that's easy. <laughs> I had the very good fortune of being married to an extremely good psychotherapist. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> My wife, Frances Vaughan, was truly, while she died about a year ago, was truly a master therapist. And it was she, you know, she, uh, her help and nourishment and love were major aspects. Um, the advice of our mutual good friend Ken Wilbur was very helpful, who really kind of gave a little uh, philosophical frame, framing for more skillful ways of approaching practice. Uh, the benefits of having done a significant amount of psychotherapy and learned practices such as relaxation and stress management were also beneficial. Uh, doing practices in a far more gentle way, which was actually the only way I could do them. I was so badly burned yeah. out, uh, yeah. was helpful. Uh, li literally for a year or so, I could not strive or struggle. I would just get this burning sensation in my chest and oh, physical pain. And uh, so in some ways, the the problem was self-correcting. You know, if you there's a saying, if you, you know, if you climb uh, the wrong ladder, <laughs> eventually, you know, eventually you realize you're... you're, you're Thanks for listening. You can listen to the full interview by joining Nightclub, Lucid Dreaming and Dream Yoga Community. Just $1 for your first 30 days. Try it out. Click the website link in our profile to get started.